0: Hello, this is Father Mike Walker, and you are listening to Father Mike's Bible Study Podcast. It is a Bible study from a mainstream Catholic perspective. The whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation will be covered. The purpose is to give the listener a working knowledge of the Bible and a basis for further study and prayer. We hope you enjoy this, and may God bless you as you study and read the inspired Word of God. All right, so I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the limited, well, challenges, I guess, limitations of of language in general. Um, I'm talking about Hebrew, but Greek has some of the same um, issues. So, for example, can you all read that? Yeah, so what's missing in that? so there are no vowels so in hebrew actually the ancient hebrew they didn't have vowels it was assumed so people would read and they would just assume because they would recognize the 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 words and then they would fill in whatever sounds were used and they also didn't have punctuation so um, except that came in later so at first they just you know later they would kind of breathe and bring Put in breathing marks and different things, but they didn't have punctuation. They didn't have spaces even. So some of these sort of things, like you look at ancient manuscripts and, uh, and Greek is this way too. It's like, they're all just stacked up on one another. And it just, you just have to kind of figure out when a word ends and a new one begins. Um, let me give you an example of, of this in the new Testament, John one no one has ever seen God, the only son, God who is at the Father's side, has revealed him. All right, so what does that mean? No one has ever seen God. We know what that means, right? Mm-hmm. Only the son, now the next one, only the son, God, who is at the Father's side? okay, so does that mean the son is God? or are they talking about, are they talking about God, who is at the Father's side? like is that the Father? has revealed him? God has revealed him. Only the Son, who is at the Father's side, God has revealed him. So how do we understand that? Is it God the Father or is it God the Son? How many of you think it's the Son? Just a few. How many think it's the Father? Okay, you're like all Scripture scholars. Because no one can quite figure it out. And so the New American Bible actually translated that very well because you see the obscurity in it when you're reading it. Personally, I think it's the Son. Because why would Paul write that if he wasn't showing the divinity of Jesus? You know, there's no need to put God as the Father because everyone just assumed God was the Father or the Father was God. So anyway, that's a whole different story. But, um, but if you, just as your little side note, John one eighteen, look up that in your own translations besides the New American, and you will notice sometimes the translators translate it where Jesus is not divine, so that that gets really mistranslated a lot, especially in some modern translation. I think the uh, new standard new revised standard version, for example, they kind of took Jesus out of the God part, you know, and they in my opinion mistranslated because they left they made a decision rather than leaving it open all right here 's another example. what does this word say? Aha, uh-huh. not her then. Or ah, uh, another then. So think about it. If the letters are all together, sometime it could go one way or another, right? And so this is another limitation that we find in language. When they're making translations, they have to try to figure out how does this play out and how does this get read. Um, sometimes, too, there are multiple possible meanings. And it, it depends on how you would try to understand it. Like when I say hold up the line. Am I referring to holding up a rope or am I referring to preventing other people from walking into the supermarket line? You know, it's like, depends on how you look at it. When I say something like, um, well, now I just kind of went blank there, but you know, like those kind of double meanings that we have. And the other problem is sometimes there are idioms that are used. You're pulling my leg. So what happens when something like you're pulling my leg gets written about 3,000 years ago? And then we read that literally and we're like, oh, they must have been pulling his leg. You know, because we're reading it literally, right? So let me, give you a, let me give you an example and see if you can figure out what this means. So uh, King Saul went out and he decided that he was going to go cover his feet. What does that mean? He's going to put on shoes, put on sandals. Anyone know this one? You're smiling back there. He's going, to the he's going to the bathroom. That's what it means. So when you read literally, he covered his feet, that means he's going to the bathroom. It's an idiom. You know, so there are these expressions that are used sometimes. And uh, now you can all tell you, well, I got I to gotta go cover my feet. So. <laughs> yeah. So... This can be tricky as well because just because you can literally read something in the, in the original language doesn't mean how you're reading it is is really accurate when it might be some sort of idiom or it might be a, a different way of understanding it. And so that's one of the challenges that we have in, in translations. And another one is that we've got some obscure words that only get used like one or two times and then you try to figure out. Well, what does that mean? Because there's no other references or cross references to the words that are being used, and sometimes it's it can be a word that could be important one way or another. For example, how many know what the word Rachel means? What does it mean? Little lamb, right? And so Laban, when Jacob went to get a wife, there was uh, there were two daughters. There was uh, Leah, the older, and then there was Rachel, the younger. So Rachel means little lamb. So what does Leah mean? Big lamb. lamb. (laughs) Older lamb? Mutton? No. Okay, they don't know. So they don't know for sure. What they think it means is cow. So, because she's the little lamb and, and Leah's the little cow, you know, so... Poor thing, and and sometimes, yeah, sometimes they they do that on purpose. They they've got these names that at the time that it was written um, were were kind of funny, but then later on, you know, it kind of gets lost a little bit in the in the translation. People miss the kind of the humor of those sort of things. So anyway, we have obscure words. Then we also have what they call loan words. So at different times in the history of Israel you've got different cultural influences. So when the Assyrians came down, for example, some of the words change. And then when the Babylonians came in, you got some words that were changing. When the Persians came, some words changed. And then during the Exodus, some of the words picked up a, a little bit of a, a uh, Egyptian scent. Like the word Moses, for example, it's an Egyptian word. There are a few other words like that that, They just basically take an Egyptian word and then put it in the text. You know, like when you're watching a movie and they're speaking English, but they're pretending like they're in France. And so they'll say, oui, oui, monsieur. You know, they'll do that kind of thing. So they do that in scripture too. It it gives a certain authenticity to it. Um, Sometimes what it shows is there are cultural cues that get worked into the text that predate um, the text itself or cultural cues that get written in. And it's kind of a fascinating thing, but it makes sense if you think about it, since the Bible is written over so many centuries, that sometimes the words change and sometimes the meanings change. All right, someone brought up the Dead Sea Scrolls, but uh, there was one that was kind of interesting because there was a translation of a particular word that over a couple hundred years, from the first time it was written to the second time that it got written down, the word itself changed. And so then first century Palestine then when they translated that word, it was from Isaiah, they, they changed the word so it gave the modern meaning in the first century, even though it was written uh, probably about 500 years before that. You know, So you've got that kind of thing happening sometimes. So can you have a later redactor that says, well, let me do everyone a favor and say what this word really means. You know, so, But I can say that doesn't happen much. It's actually amazing it doesn't happen as much as people think. Okay, so when it comes to, let's see. So this is something that is in chapter four of your book. So I'm just going to brush through it because, frankly, you get lost in it and it can get kind of boring. So these are just what they call different types of criticisms that are applied to Scripture. I don't mean criticize like criticizing, but it's just putting... Um, some sort of methodical investigation into the text. So, for example, there's lower criticism, and that is discovering the most accurate text, because there are different manuscripts. So a lower criticism is saying, let's take all these manuscripts and try to figure out which one's the most accurate. There's higher criticism, and that is, what does the text mean? All right, so you're trying to use tools to figure out what the text actually means. So you've got the lower is discovering the more accurate text by manuscripts, and the other one is saying what it means. Form criticism. Let's see. No, we're not going to get to that. Okay, form criticism. It tells us, first of all, who is speaking? Who is the audience? What is being said? Where is it said? And what is the purpose? Right, so those are all different questions that you can ask. Um, so, for example, let's say that We've got a text that is uh, um, Elijah speaking. Okay, so at the time this was written, who is speaking? You could say, well, Elijah is. Okay, but does that represent more than just Elijah? Does it represent faithful Israel? And you know, you're asking these kind of questions. Who is the audience? And you'd say, well, the people Elijah is speaking to, right? Well, yeah, but isn't it also the country of Israel uh, and the followers of the, you know, different types of theologies, maybe? What is being said? you know okay the let's let's talk about when elijah went in and and uh said go ahead you worshipers of baal and go ahead and do your little dance and you know do whatever you have and you know so when all this is going on what is being said and then where is it being said is is it is that important when something's being said in egypt or being said in israel is it, is there a difference and what's the purpose like Why was that included in the first place? That's a good question to ask on a lot of things. When you read something that's just weird, say, why is that in the Bible? Why is that included? Um, I can say that a lot of times I would dismiss something and I would say, well, that's irrelevant. It doesn't really matter. It's not important. And later on, I'd find, well, there was actually a good reason why that's there. And so um, that's part of that being humble before the text. Don't just necessarily say, well, this isn't important or, well, that's just not even true. You know, just think, well, maybe there's something I'm not getting, which is a lot healthier than saying, you know, well, the Bible is just stupid. You know, that's probably not a good thing to say. All right. So you try to identify the text, name the genre. All right. Genre. Is it poetry? Is it literal history? Is it theology? Is it music? Um, Is it history? You know, there are all kinds of different genres that it could be as well. And then trying to identify the purpose Right, so there's source criticism, that's that one, and you ask, where did this text come from? Like, what was the date that, when it was written? Are there different elements that are combined? It, it is possible, and in some places probable, that there were different texts that were floating around until someone took those texts and then put, it, put them to one common text. An example of this is the book of Daniel. And I was talking during the break, and I mentioned that the Book of Daniel has actually got a Hebrew and it's got Aramaic and it's got Greek. You've got three different languages, but they were all put together in one book, and uh, the Book of Daniel. And then parts of it are obviously changed, and then some, you know, don't so obviously change, but someone put that together, and so, so that's looking at those different elements. Redaction criticism is how the text has evolved. There are sometimes that you'll see ancient elements in some text that also has some newer elements. And uh, one example of this is when uh, uh, Abraham and his sister, when they're out and I 'll talk a little bit about this, I'll talk about it pretty soon I'll talk about that a little soon. OK. <laughs> then uh, I'll get to that. All right, sometimes looking at the Bible or a larger text, understanding it as a whole. Because I think what happens, sometimes people get, they dissect the Bible and they take it so much so that they don't look at it as a whole and they mix, they miss a bigger context. And one example of that is the creation story. There is a certain parallel that happens from beginning to end with both of those stories. And even though a lot of scholars say that those are two separate stories, they're combined so well that one is explaining it from up-down and the other is from down-up, but they fit together so well, it just seems a little hard to believe that it was just someone kind of cramming two stories together because there's a unity into it, if you read it as a whole, that needs to be considered, um, especially as you're, you're looking at, well, this is from this and this is from that and this is from that. So trying to see things as a literary whole can be very um, enlightening as well. Okay, so literary criticism, there are different styles of literature. There can be history, hymns, poetry, parables. There can be a mythic style, um, epic. Um, there can be sagas, moral teachings, instructions, wisdom, worship, prayer, nostalgia, um, different styles of writing. And so we probably should not project what we think it should be, but try to understand the scripture In the way that it was written, in the style that it was written. So, for example, if something's a parable, you don't necessarily want to read it as literal history, you know, so you want to understand the genre. All right, sacred oral tradition. I talked about this before. There was a sacred oral tradition that kept the historical content from being changed by personal biases of the people who later wrote those traditions down. Um, For example, there's much agreement among the different sources on issues that they passed on without knowing the event's significance. So, in other words, they're passing down and even writing about things that happened, even though by the time they wrote it down, they forgot the particular element of the culture in which it happened. So, here's an example. The whole wife-sister thing of Sarah and Rebecca in Genesis. So, where Abraham came from, it's... In Hiran, that's the area. There was a custom that gave women special standing if there were wives and sisters, even if that was by adoption of their husbands. And so the tradition kept the detail that showed the privileged privileged position of the wives, even though they forgot why and wrote of it as if it was a selfish motive by Abraham and Isaac. So remember when Abraham was he was traveling in two different places. He says, "This is my sister." this isn't my wife. He didn't say it wasn't his wife, but he said, this is my sister. And then, because Abraham was thinking if he said it was, she was his wife, then, you know, he might get killed or something. So Pharaoh, and then also uh, one of the Arameans took her in. And then later when things started happening badly, then they found out and they said, what are you doing giving us your sister? And they made it seem like Abraham was using that as a selfish motive. But, uh, you know, about 500 years earlier, when this was actually happening, it was considered a honor to make your wife also your sister in the culture and the custom where Abraham originally came from. Now, by the time the, the uh, Israelite who wrote that down, wrote it down, he forgot that that was a custom that happened in a different civilization where Abraham came from. Are you following me on this? Okay. Now, why this is important, by the way, is... I think it shows, it's internal evidence that shows credibility to the existence of Abraham, because how else would they take a story and a custom that has been shown to exist and write it in without knowing it if they made it up? you see what I mean? So there are those kind of things all over the place. So, Yeah, but the Quran was written 600 years after the time of Jesus, so you can't really use that as a historical book, you know, that's, that's, well, I don't want to get into all that stuff, (laughs) but the, uh, the thing, if we're looking at the, the, the real history, we got to, we got to use texts, which are, you know, the most ancient texts. So, but my point of that, there's another one. They got Laban going when Jacob went and stole Laban's house gods. Well, this was another one of those stories that they're like, what the heck? What, why would they do that? and, and it was something that was considered in that culture at that time something that was somewhat normal. You could steal someone's house gods, and it wasn't necessarily even stealing it. It was just kind of taking advantage of an opportunity, and it was someone being clever. Whereas by the time it was written down, it was like he was stealing house gods. you know. So these are little cultural uh, signatures, so to speak, that predate the actual text by hundreds of years, and then later got written down. So this is part of that sacred oral tradition. All right. In addition to that, we've got history and culture so we can understand something, um, better if we understand the history and the culture in which it came from. Um, and let's see. If, oh, good. I got plenty of time. I got five minutes. <laughs> All right. So let me give you an example of that. So, you know, the idea of 40, like there there's a lot of forties in there, right? And so they say like, um, Abraham lived, what was it? 110 or something like that. And so there was an archeologist who was working in Iraq, uh, Northern Iraq, Southern Turkey. And this was about maybe 75 years ago or something like that. And so he came upon this helper who was helping in this, this dig and it was the dad and the son and the son was a hard worker. And so the archeologist using his Aramaic or his, uh, Arabic, was saying, boy, your son, you know, he's a very good hard hard worker. And uh, how old is he? And he says, well, Allah knows, but he could be 20. He could be 30. He could be 40. But you decide. And, uh, you know, I will tell you this. He uh, came about after he was born uh, right after um, World War II ended. So on one hand, you've got a dating. He could be Thirty, he could be, or he could be twenty, he could be thirty, he could be forty. Allah knows. But I'll tell you this: He was born after World War II. Well, he was only like in his twenties, you know. But it was just an expression and a way of of thinking that says, you know, it's like, well, in God years, who knows, you know? But anyway, he was born then, and and some of those things they get written in with the years that we we hear. For example, that forty, you know, like David lived forty years. Did he live exactly forty years? Well, maybe not. Um, but those are kind of ideal numbers, and, and they tend to, in that culture, that tends to be the way that people would speak. And so knowing these cultural things helped to be able to uh, illustrate what was really going on. Uh, a real quick cultural thing. If you're going to meet a wife, go to the well. You don't go to the bar. You go to a well, you know. <laughs> so there was Moses, and then there was Jacob, you know. So they went to the well, right? So this is a, this is a cultural motif. that that gets written into the scriptures. Now, where was Jesus when he met that woman at the well, right? So there's some tension there, isn't there? Maybe that adds another dimension to this idea of marriage and this woman and who she really represents and what Jesus is really doing when he's at the well. So do you see how that cultural understanding helps bring that out? (laughs) Yeah, we'll get to that in the New Testament. All right, so there are different ways to understand scripture. There's a literal sense. So most of what we're doing today is in the literal sense. That means not that we take it all exactly literally, but it's, it's understood in the way that it was written in the context in which it was written. There's also an allegorical sense and that's where you're saying, you know, okay, so Jesus is the good shepherd and that's an allegory that represents something. And that represents Jesus who cares for his people and all that. So allegorical is where you can read the literal, but it refers to something that is poetic or allegorical. There's also a moral sense. And that is where you read something, you say, turn the other cheek. Okay, the moral sense is don't retaliate. You know, pretty easy. There's a spiritual sense. Sometimes when you're reading something, how great are your ways, O Lord? You know, well, there's a spiritual sense. You're you're bringing that into that. And then sometimes there's the fuller sense, and that is how do we understand this part of Scripture within the greater context of salvation history? And so once you get all those together, it, it helps to um, look at the Bible in different ways. Okay, so I'm done for tonight. Um, tomorrow morning, there will be a type of a breakfast thing provided, and then also... Uh, There will be a lunch, like a simple lunch provided. So that way you only get 15 minutes to eat lunch and I can keep talking. No. So Marty, what is, when's lunch? Noonish? Noonish. All right. Noonish. Also, what was the other thing I was supposed to remember? We're serving breakfast and lunch tomorrow. Got that. Got that. Next Friday, Oh, next Friday. Long story, but we'll actually have the class in the church just Friday night. And then Saturday, we'll be back in here. And what is it? Nine o'clock in the morning. Yes. All right. Ends at three. Yes. Okay. All right. You're all good. Good night, everybody. I'll answer some questions tomorrow morning as we start, so you can think some. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. May God be with you and continue to bless you as you continue to deepen your love of God's word in your prayer and in your study. If you'd like further information, please go to our website at shepherdcatholic.com. You will find some notes and some references and additional things to help you in your love of the scripture. May God bless you.